0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133 for this morning's Old Testament lesson. It's a short psalm, but a beautiful one, and one that speaks of the great unity that's found in believers. It speaks of uh, the unity being as precious as the dew that flows from the mountains, or even the oil that flows from the great high priests of old. It's a fitting psalm for a troubled church, just like the church that we'll hear about this morning, the church of Corinth. Psalm 133, below uh, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing that of life forevermore. Now turning with me uh, for our New Testament lesson, Acts chapter 18. We'll read verses 1 to 11, and we're beginning a new sermon series uh, this morning, working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and here we're given a little bit of background information just in these short 11 verses, speaking of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. And I, I a helpful point in thinking through uh, the life of the New Testament church, where was it that the mission to the Gentiles began? It began with the church in Corinth. So Acts chapter 18, verses 1. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was, in fact, Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.'" From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. And now turning with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So we give our attention just to the first two verses this morning. I read uh, just a a few uh, weeks ago, somebody describing some of the the various letters of Paul, and and he said that if we uh, could compare Paul's letter to the Ephesians as as the solemn swell of a calm sea, or if we compared uh, his letter to the Church of Rome as the ever-deepening flow of a stately river, then surely 2 Corinthians is the mighty rush of wild rapids. Uh, In my estimation, this is Paul's most difficult letter. And yet, in some respects, I think it might be his most important letter. Inasmuch as this letter relates to us the nature of the Christian ministry. As we've been asking this question over the past several weeks what are we doing here? What is the purpose of gathering together on the Lord's Day? What is it that we receive as we gather? What is all of this about? Here, Paul gives us an answer. What makes this letter so difficult? is that Paul is not writing this letter safe in the comforts of a private seaside villa. He's not writing a cold academic treatise. Rather, Paul is writing to a church that is on the verge of falling apart. And he writes as one where several have lost confidence in his leadership abilities as their eyes have become transfixed on celebrity preachers who have failed to grasp that the cross... It's the paradigm, not just for Christian salvation, but also the paradigm for Christian living and discipleship. So this is a hard letter. It's a painful letter. I I often describe this letter as uh, bouncing around as if you're a pinball in an arcade game, trying to make sense of what the central theme to this letter is. But as difficult and as painful as this letter is, it is, in fact, God's letter, inspired and given to Ada's church in the midst of turmoil and strife. So here now the opening words of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go for the Lord in prayer and ask that he would illuminate his word for us this morning. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, even as you have placed us uh, here in a dark wilderness, in this moment of our trial and testing, uh, you have not left us without light. So as we give heed to Christ's word this morning, we ask that the Scriptures would illuminate our path, the path of righteousness, the path of holiness in which we are to walk, so that we might navigate this path through dark places. Teach us to watch our step, we pray. For our safety and for Christ's glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when it comes to the city of Corinth, what, what can we say? Uh, there's so much that's difficult about reading about this ancient city. You know, in Paul's day, it's one of the largest cities uh, in the ancient world, estimated by contemporary historians of about three-quarters of a million people, roughly a third of that population being slaves. It's a a relatively new city, although the the city of Corinth had been around for centuries. The Romans had razed it to the ground in the second century B.C. And about a hundred years before Paul's day, uh, Julius Caesar himself had re-established this city as a Roman colony. You think about the ancient world. Uh, Think about living in ancient Athens, one of the largest cultural centers in the ancient world. Uh, The only way you could really have land or a name for yourself is if you were born into one of the old aristocratic families uh, who had the land, who had the nobility, who had the prestige. There was really no way to move up the social ladder because all the wealthy families had already owned the property. And yet Corinth becomes something different because it becomes a new colony. It becomes the gathering place whereby anybody who wants to make a name for themselves, anybody who wants to climb up the social ladder goes to start their lives afresh. Whereas the other cities in the empire were renowned for other virtues, Rome for its government, Athens for its wisdom, Thessalonica for its culture, Corinth, as a result of these things, had come to be known for two things, ambition and pleasure. On the one hand, you have Corinth's ambition, Again, as I said, there's no way to climb up the social ladder in most other cities in the ancient world, and yet Corinth becomes uh, an exception to the rule. Here becomes a new city with new opportunities. Anyone who wants to be somebody moves here. Corinth becomes the boomtown of the ancient imperial regime. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Corinth, is located. it's located in southern Greece on a tiny peninsula known as the Isthmian Peninsula. It's a port city. It's a strategic stopping point located almost split down the middle, uh, in, in the halfway in between uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It becomes a strategic merchant port city as a result, uh, bustling trade, right? Sure, you may not have been born into nobility, but here you could finally make a name for yourself. You can get rich, you can buy land, you can establish your own family dynasty. As a result, it becomes a seedbed for ambition. That's a cutthroat city in many ways, driven by pride, driven by boasting. It requires a hearty cultivation of egotism. You think about, as a modern example, what it would be like to try to make it on Wall Street? To go there, to get a job, you find that you don't just get a job to make money. It's now the job makes you. The job shapes you. The market makes the man. It forges his identity. It shapes his very character, such is the nature of living in Corinth for so many people. But we see ambition is not the only vice uh, where the inhabitants had to wrestle with, so too is the pursuit of pleasure. I was reading one commentator this week, uh, clearly an Englishman who writes this, because he describes Corinth as a posh town. Um, It's a port city. We might call uh, Corinth's uh, tourist industry uh, one of the central features. It skyrockets. You have the so-called Isthmian Games, an ancient rival to the Olympic feats. You have thousands upon thousands of people who would come to watch the chariot races or or the so-called pankration is kind of the ancient equivalent of MMA fighting. You have these boxing matches. You have wrestling, as we call it back home in the South. You have the the battle of the bands, these these music festivals and competitions. And then, of course, uh, you have uh, the big rhetoric debates, the the, uh, ancient equivalent of what we might call a poetry slam. With all these tourists and with all these sailors from the merchant ships attending these various events, you also have attending with it something else, a bustling sex trade. The temple prostitution, which by the way, that prostitution is involuntary, is tethered to the religious atmosphere of the Corinthians of their day and age. So much so that to be called a Corinthian uh, was somewhat a slang term used in the ancient world uh, to speak of one's sexual proclivities. Here, uh, sexual perversion is seen as an act of piety. It's seen as an act of religious devotion. Here, uh, the massive temple and the red-light district were one in the same place. Here's a city that's corrupted by the pursuit of pleasure. It's Vanity Fair. If those, for those of you are familiar with Bunyan's uh, work, Pilgrim's Progress, this is uh, the shining example. It's a pantheon of perversity. It's a melting pot of rich and poor sailors, prostitutes, athletes, celebrities, business owners, the highbrow, the lowbrow, something that's affected the church as well. It's a city driven by ambition and idolized pleasure, two things that invite the very wrath of God. And yet, this is still the very city where God begins, out of his own sovereign goodness, the mission to the Gentiles. As we had read in Acts 18 just a few moments earlier, Amidst such a, lit- such a city comes a letter where the Lord's an emissary. That's what the, the word apostle means, is an emissary. The Lord's an emissary comes breeding tidings, not of judgment and war, but of grace and peace. And I think how many of us uh, would say such things? to those around us as we're watching the news around us. For instance, uh, uh, the the various uh, uh, riots and protests taking place just north up in in Portland. How many of us would look at the news and want to go bringing a message of grace and peace? How many of us in our heart of hearts say the exact opposite? How many of us are perhaps more like Jonah, who would rather sit outside the city gates with a bucket of popcorn waiting for the fire to fall? How many of us are uh, like uh, Jesus' own disciples, When they're rejected by the townspeople, they say, Lord, should we not call down fire from heaven? What does Jesus say? He rebukes them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You do not get the mission of the Son rather than a message of judgment and war. Here the apostle comes breeding tidings of grace and peace. These are loaded terms. I think we've grown... So accustomed to these particular terms, I think we, uh, at least for me, treat it something like a Christianized hallmark greeting. Grace and peace, brother. We just treat it like that. It's my best Hulk Hogan impersonation, by the way. I think we forget the foreignness of its import. I'm glad you all know who Hulk Hogan is. Um, If anybody wants to watch WrestleMania, give me a call. Here are the tidings that come from a heavenly kingdom announced to sinners. Paul is the emissary of a foreign kingdom breeding tidings of comfort and joy. The term grace, if you do a word study, I encourage you just to to look up the number of times grace is used in the New Testament and see throughout the week what it comes to mean, what it is a shorthand for. The term grace is not some schmaltzy term that Christians use because they can't think of anything better to say. Rather, grace is a word that summarizes God's work in history into a single phrase. John chapter 1 tells us that God's grace is found in only one source, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is not found anywhere else. It's found only in the Lord Jesus who was born of a virgin that he might bear our sins and that we might be reconciled to God Titus chapter 2, grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, speaking of the work of Christ. It is grace that saves apart from works, Ephesians chapter 2. It is grace that comes apart from worldly know-how, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. It is grace that redeems us from Satan's tyranny, Ephesians chapter 1. It is grace that brings the sinner from death to life. It is grace that has put death to death, Hebrews chapter it is grace that manifests God's kindness to sinners. It is grace that elects. It is grace that justifies. It is grace that has granted us access to God. It is grace that sanctifies. It is grace that strengthens. It is grace that nurtures and causes us to grow. It is grace that trains the nations to obedience, and it is grace that brings life where death once reigned. Do a simple word study of grace, and you'll find that all these are exactly what the New Testament tells us grace, in fact, is. It is grace that reigns where the sentence of condemnation and death once stood. It is grace that abounds to sinners, not simply those content with their own righteousness. It is grace that works humility in the hearts of the proud. It is grace that equips ministers and believers for the work the ministry. It is grace that provides for us that we might provide for others, not just in terms of our spiritual well-being, but also in terms of our physical well-being, as we'll see in chapters 8 and 9. To quote uh, the words of the famous John Newton, it is grace that taught our hearts to fear, and it's grace that will lead us home. See, grace is a loaded word, a word that we should not have our uh, eyes glaze over as we hear the salutation given every week. Why is it that the minister comes every Sunday morning breeding, bringing tidings of grace and peace? It's not simply a, a nice way to open up the service. No, it's a reminder that this is in fact the declaration of Amnesty the hostility between God and man has been dealt with through the cross of Christ. And just as Paul comes bringing tidings of grace, so he comes bringing tidings of peace. Jesus himself says that the peace he gives is different than the type of peace that the world brings. It is a peace that endures through the midst of tribulation, John chapter 16. It is a peace that surpasses understanding. It is peace that calms the sinner's troubled conscience when he knows he has sinned against his God yet again. It is peace that reconciles us not only to God, but also to one another, as the New Testament repeatedly affirms and calls us to do. It is peace that begets peace. Even as Paul describes the warfare of the believer, he says in Ephesians chapter 6, that the footwear of the soldier of the cross is that. Of the gospel of peace. It is peace that has crushed Satan underfoot. It is peace that brings clarity in the midst of confusion. It is peace that makes us whole, be it from our own fractured lives, from broken homes, or from those reeling from empty promises, Christ has come announcing peace. Ephesians chapter two, verse fourteen. Christ himself is our peace. And he himself is our grace. And so when we come hearing every Sunday morning grace and peace, to be reminded that this summarizes the work of Christ wrought for us. We should not have our eyes glaze over this. Last week we considered the nature of preaching. The week before, the nature of Christian worship. This morning, we simply want us to consider the opening salutation that we hear every Sunday morning. Is the declaration of one of God's emissaries, his minister, a minister of the word declaring that peace has been effected through the blood of his cross, through the cross of Christ. So that when grace and peace are announced, they are come announcing grace and peace to you. This is not a bumper sticker greeting. These are glad tidings, not simply from Paul himself, as we see here in the passage, but rather they are glad tidings of grace and peace from God himself. Paul was sent as an apostle. The word apostle means sent, sent for this very purpose. Ministers of the gospel are sent for this very purpose that amid a city that has been enslaved to sin and to lust and to perversion, God has come announcing good news, not of judgment but of grace, not of war but of peace, that the time of amnesty has arrived, that the call for repentance goes forth with the warning that there will come a day when that time for amnesty will end. But for any, no matter how deep or dark your sin, no matter how irredeemable you think you are, there is nothing that the blood of Christ will not cover or atone for. As the scripture says, whoever will put their hope in God's beloved son will not perish under judgment, but will enjoy a life of grace and peace. In a city such as Corinth that has offered fame, pleasure, gratification, self-expression, the list goes on and on and on. There is one thing that neither Corinth nor Corvallis is ever able to offer her citizens, and that is a message of grace and peace. It's something that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the reason we gather together every Sunday to be reminded that this grace has been extended to the people of God. It's the reason we invite our friends and our family members to come so that they might hear these glad tidings of peace and joy. This is a message that ought to recalibrate our hearts as we consider the world around us. As we live in a state that so desperately needs to hear God's tidings of grace and peace and the call for repentance and the call for faith and simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as this message shapes our hearts for those out there, those outside these four walls, as this is a message that should ignite in our hearts an evangelistic fervor, we must first recognize that it addresses first and foremost the church in here. Here, Paul writes to a church that is on the rocks. Here he writes to a church that is on the verge of falling apart, as we'll see through the rest of this letter in the coming months. Here is a church that is still tainted by the world, a church whose members are still struggling with pride, ambition, boasting, even sexual, gross sexual sin and pleasure. Here is a church that is wrecked by infighting. Here is a church that is beset by mutual distrust and suspicion of others even within their own ranks. Here's a church that has been without uh, her, her, her pastor, Paul himself, for several months, as he has been away serving other churches. Here's a congregation which has mishandled a very difficult discipline matter, but one in which might, in fact, surprise us. Here's a church whose members have given an ear to celebrity preachers more than they have the gospel message. Here's a church that has failed to see that it is the cross That serves as the litmus test for the Christian life and not political or worldly power, prestige, or notoriety. Here's a church that has failed to recognize that suffering is the mode of the Christian life in this life as we await the new heavens and the new earth. Here's a church that has been challenged to serve other believers in the midst of a severe famine that is facing Jerusalem. They're called to gather around to support those not only in soul, but also to support those in terms of their bodily needs. In other words, Paul comes bringing glad tidings to a dysfunctional church, and he does so by calling them what they really are. He does not come say, you imbeciles knuckleheads, dumb sheep. That is not what he says. Rather, he comes calling them what they are. As dysfunctional as they are, as broken as they are by their sin, he comes calling them saints. Those beloved by God, those who have been washed in the precious blood of Christ, forgiven of their sins, and now called to maintain a peace that they have already been so graciously given what was true for that church is true for this church. Because the gospel has not changed. And the gospel will not change. The gospel is glad tidings for sinners. The gospel is glad tidings even for redeemed sinners. Amidst all the trials and troubles that we presently face, We must remember that there is no trial so great that it extends beyond the power of God's grace and that there is no tribulation so terrible that will shake the glad tidings of peace, of grace and peace that come to us so richly from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the tidings of peace that have been announced We ask that you would take even these three simple words, grace and peace, to heart. That it would reorient our hearts around us, not only for those outside these four walls, but for those within. Uh, That you would lavish us with your grace, that we might lavish our grace upon others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.